be seated. A um, few announcements for you this morning before we jump into the Word, and I want to make it uh, a bit brief. And part of making it a bit brief is to remind you to look at the email as it goes out uh, this week. But we're going to begin doing something a little different on the third Tuesdays of every month. And that is we're going to provide at 2.30 in the afternoon a little more praise and worship. And, and you may say, like, another time of worship and prayer? And yes, right? Uh, and the idea is this, is from Psalm chapter 16, where we want to set the Lord always before us. You can do that in anything that you might be doing, whether it's at work or at home or wherever you're doing. But as a church, we want to intentionally do that. We want to just press into the Lord, especially during the season where everything seems to be a little different. So first Fridays, we have prayer at 7 p.m. Uh, right here at the building. Uh, but then also third Tuesdays, 2.30 in the afternoon, uh, we'll have a little prayer, uh, praise and worship time together. So again, an opportunity to intercede for our church family as well as for our neighborhood, our city, uh, and our nation. So come on out uh, for that if you are able. We'll try to figure out something even for the kids during that time. We'll, we'll kind of go as we can, uh, being careful with the season that we are in, uh, but we'll try to fig figure something out specifically uh, for that. Uh, also then, this is a little further out, but uh, Wednesday, September 23rd, there's a pro-life prayer vigil down at 12th and Locust Street. It's, uh, I think it's kicking off the 40 days, if that's correct. Yeah, it's kicking off the 40 days of prayer. And so maybe this is something that together as DCs we could do, gather down there, spend a time of prayer uh, interceding, uh, particularly for that issue within our, our nation. So I'll, well, more information will get out over email, so just be looking forward to that. Uh, now for like some really exciting news. As many of you already know, the Adams, there is a new Adams in the world uh, at this point, Lewis Adams. So congratulations to Zach and Natalie as they are at home and probably exhausted uh, at this point. Uh, but we wanna just thank the Lord for the blessing of life that he has granted to their family and as a church family to our family as, as well. So we're gonna thank the Lord for that. And then also then just pray for Grace City Church of Frankfurt. Uh, and then just pray in general for our neighborhood during this uh, season. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump right into Ezekiel 47. So if you have your phone, your Bible, you can kind of begin to turn there. But let's go ahead and pray together. God, we are so thankful that you are the God of life. Thank you um, that you bless, you bless families um, with these little lives, um, lives ultimately from you. So thank you for Lewis. Thank you for this little image bearer. We ask your blessing upon him. We asked as well that you would give Zach and Natalie strength uh, during this time as they care for him and the others. I pray that during this time where uh, there may be certain points of exhaustion, God, I pray that you would provide unique strength. I pray that something of the joy of the Lord would be their strength. Uh, during the season that they would find themselves exhausted and yet joyfully content uh, in you. So God, would you work? We thank you. We glorify you. We exalt you for a healthy life, a little, little boy. And so we 
uh, praise your name. But we also then uh, intercede for Grace City of Frankfurt uh, again during a difficult time where everything's different. We pray that you'd give Steve Bound and the other leaders there just wisdom as to how to guide, direct uh, that particular church. We pray that they would be a unique light in a dark place, even as we spent some time down there underneath the L this past week, God, to see the brokenness abounding. Thank you for a church like Frankfurt that is light amidst darkness. And we pray just as we saw from John 7 last week that the streams of your presence would, would run in those streets. We, we pray that your river would bring satisfaction to the thirsty souls, that the name of Jesus would be glorified. So we pray that you would grant them wisdom, but fruitfulness in their ministry. And God, we also thank you for our neighborhood here. Thank you for the ones who are even in, in hearing distance of what is happening here. We pray your blessing upon this neighborhood, upon these blocks. We pray against the enemy who would want to bring lies and want to confuse and would want to discourage individuals. Jesus May it be known in this neighborhood that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but through you. So, Jesus, thank you that that is not a religious statement. Thank you that that is a statement to be experienced by way of relationship. And so we pray even now, Holy Spirit, your blessing. We pray that you would reign in this neighborhood and exalt the name of Jesus Christ. So would you accomplish this for your own sake, for your own fame, for your own glory, for your own renown? And we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, Ezekiel 47. I hope you're, I hope you're there. Let, let me race over there real quick. Ezekiel 47. We're continuing our series uh, on the, more or less the meaning and mission of Mercygate, or, or more simply, why did we call our church Mercygate? And we began to see last week that the name Mercygate is established on those two principles, that is the promise of God's presence and the condition for his presence, which is thirst. Do you hunger for the presence of God, or is it just kind of cold religiosity, kind of just stuff that we do in order to fit a particular mold because we call ourselves Christians, or do we know something of the promised presence of God in our midst? Do we hunger and thirst for him? Do we know when we are spiritually on E and, and need to go back to his feet like Mary does, where Martha's busy serving and Mary goes to the feet of Jesus, and Jesus says, you've chosen the one necessary thing, to come before me, to come before my presence. Uh, when it comes to Mercy Gate, it's built on those two fundamental distinctions, principles, truths, whatever you want to call them, that is the promised presence of God and the condition for his presence. So we could say that Mercy Gate is all about pursuing uh, the presence of God, but also then growing in a thirst for more of him. We never want to stop. This isn't a relationship that takes vacation, right? We are always called to know and to grow uh, in the presence of the Lord. And so Ezekiel 47, of course, dovetails off John 7 that we saw last week. And I want to give a little bit more time to this text, but we are going to be going all over the place. So hold on. It may seem a little more teachy than preachy, but I want to give you the context. I don't just want to drop a few nuggets in your lap. I want to give you the broad picture 
as Ezekiel 47 points backward, but also points forward uh, to what God has for his people. So I want to read it and we'll jump right into it. Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel states, Then God brought me back to the door of the temple. Now the previous chapters have been talking about this new temple that has been established. And Ezekiel says, God took me back to the door of this temple, and behold, water was issuing from behold the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple and south of the altar, and he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, water was trickling. Water was trickling out of the south side. It began small, but going eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And again, he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was waist deep. And again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? In other, way, in other words, take significant note of what's happening here. Ezekiel says, then God led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very, very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows from the eastern gate and goes down to Arabah and enters the sea, probably the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea, but in this vision it does. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, and this water goes there that the water of the sea might become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Enaglaim, to, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. And on the banks and on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves will be for healing. What a picture. When it comes down to it, the question that stands before us, and as this text would allude to, the question is, what makes the people of God a distinct people? What makes the people of God a distinct people? This past week, we did a little uh, movie night with the kids, and we did the, uh, what is it, the Cinderella on Disney Plus, you know? And one of the stunning moments in Cinderella is where the fairy godmother, you know, like, decks Cinderella out. I mean, you know, she, she has the dirt on her face and the rags, and she's transformed from this peasant nobody into this stunning, beautiful woman dressed in this incredible blue gown and she arrives to the ball, right? And man, is she distinct. 
She shows up and the whole ball ends up stopping and all eyes are placed on Cinderella. She stands out. Why? Because the fairy godmother had adorned her in beauty. She was beautiful to behold more than any other woman there. Everyone's eyes are on her. And of course, the prince sees her and it's like the Red Sea opens and she comes down to him and the story unfolds. But the point being is she was distinct. She was like no one else at the ball. In a real way, God has said, my people will be distinct from any other people on the planet. And the question then stands, okay, what makes us distinct? And the big idea for the time that we have here is this, that the hallmark of God's people is, is this distinct characteristic, God's presence. God's presence is the hallmark of God's people. It is the, it's what makes us distinct. We're not distinct because of us. We're not distinct because of a building. We're not distinct because of a name. We're not distinct because of the things we might do, might say. No, we're distinct because God says, I am among you and I will be with you and will be working through you. It's God's presence that makes his people distinct from all others. How do we see this in Ezekiel 47? Well, again, Ezekiel 47, we have just seen, if you read the previous chapters, God has given him a vision of this temple and it works its way up to this point where this, the river of God's presence is flowing from this temple, but it all points us back. It, it, it builds on this theme that is working throughout the whole Old Testament and Ezekiel 47 points us forward to the New Testament, to the condition that we live in today. And the overarching theme is this, is that God's presence is the hallmark of God's people. So I want to prove it to you. <laughs> I want to take you back to the Old Testament. Ready to get to, to the teachy part of all this stuff, right? We're going to go and see that God's presence is the hallmark of his people in the Old Testament and then point it towards the New and see it true in the New Testament as well. So let's, let's begin the journey. Right? Think, think through. We're, we're about to jump into the storyline of Scripture and just kind of uh, timeline. We're moving through the storyline to see that God's presence is what makes God's people distinct. So beginning in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was said to be a temple, right? So, take a moment, everybody look. <laughs> You're good. So, in, in, in that time, here, here, here the, the Garden of Eden is established, and, and God will even say, he will even say that he walks in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. It's the exact same terminology that Jesus or God will speak of when he refers to his presence within the temple, that he's dwelling, that he's being with his people. Adam, Adam will be one who is defined as the one who is to guard and serve the garden. It's the same language that the priests would have been described as in their role within the temple. In other words, it's all to say that even in the Garden of Eden, this temple theme was present. God has always wanted to be the hallmark of his people. He's always wanted to dwell with his people and be with his people. But of course, as we 
fast forward through the storyline, sin enters, there's separation, and now God and man can't coexist together. There's a holy God, there's sinful man. What will happen? Well, we even know as the time of the Exodus, Moses, who's leading God's people out of the Exodus, will say in Exodus 33, if you remember, he says, God, don't take us up from here if you are not going to come with us. Exodus 33 Moses will specifically state, because it's your presence with us that makes us distinct from any other people. God, you must dwell with us. You must establish some way to be with your people. And so in the following chapters of Exodus, what does God do? But he establishes the tabernacle. And there's all this instruction, this unique instruction because now the emblems and even the specific details of this tabernacle hearken back to the Garden of Eden. Again, what God is saying is, I want to be with my people. I want to see something of what is broken, restored again. And so what God does is he sets up the tabernacle. And of course, there in the center of the tabernacle is the Holy of Holies. And there within the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And God says, my presence will dwell here. And we see in the storyline that his presence does dwell. His manifest glory dwells among his people. If you haven't seen the picture of it, uh, there is a link to the notes uh, that I've provided and a few pictures uh, included there that show you something of what the manifest presence of God among his people may have looked like as the camp would have been set up and all tribes would gather around the tabernacle and God would manifest his presence in the center over the Holy of Holies, over the Ark of the Covenant, either by a cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night. God's people were distinct because God dwelt in their presence. And everyone knew it. God demonstrated his presence among them. It wasn't just some sort of religious idea. It was a real reality for God's people to know God's presence for he, he was at the center of everything they did. A pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. Now as the story moves on to the time of the kings, you have David who says, God, uh, we, we want to establish a temple for you. We don't want the old tabernacle, you know, that it was always used for moving around for times of worship through the wilderness wandering. No, now that we're in the land, we want to see a temple created. If I have a house, David says, you need to have a house, God. Let's, let's, let's establish something permanently. And of course, what God says to David is, your hands are filled with blood. You're a warrior man. I've used you to that end your son is actually going to be the one who establishes the temple. And sure enough, that's what Solomon did. And if you remember, by the time uh, of Solomon, he had established, uh, he built the temple, and the temple was glorious. But I want, I want to point out a few texts. As, as the time came closer to the dedication of the temple, you, you should hear from 2 Chronicles chapter 5, it states this. It states, Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. There's another picture in the notes. 
of, of the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord, the temple, was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory, the weightiness, the significance of the Lord filled the house of God. These are stunning moments where God is declaring, he's manifesting his presence in a way in which he says, see, my presence is with you. This is my desire. This is what will make you distinct from any other people, my presence among you. Second Chronicles, as the time of the dedication of the temple came, Solomon finished praying and fire came down from heaven he could, and it consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord. Again, the weightiness, the kabod of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying once again, He is good and His steadfast love endures forever. Do you see? It's God's, it's God's desire to have His presence even his manifest presence be the distinct hallmark of God's people. This is God's desire. Now as time goes on, here we go, we're going through the timeline of the story of, of Scripture. From Solomon we see everything goes wrong <laughs> in the nation. Right? There's a divided nation and things get really bad and the exile period comes where Babylon comes and Assyria and Babylon are involved in seeing the people of God exiled from the land. They're taken slaves uh, to Babylon and to Assyria. And this is where we come to Ezekiel. This is where the previous chapters from Ezekiel 47, it, it, it's all describing this new temple that will one day be established. Now for Ezekiel in the exile, he, he's with God's people in the exile and, and, and what, something incredible happens, unexpected happens. In a vision, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord show up to Babylon. And the grand question in the book of Ezekiel is, what in the world is the glory of the Lord now doing in Babylon? Why isn't the glory of the Lord back at the temple? That's where the presence of God was said to reside. Why is he now in Babylon? And God goes on to explain to Ezekiel chapters 8 through 10 that there is idolatry among God's people back home. There's injustice. Folks, idolatry always leads to injustice. Idolatry always leads to injustice. The injustice that we see today in our world, I'm just going to like make it very concise, it's from idolatry. When the presence of God is removed, when he is supplemented for something else, when other idols are established, where other pleasures are pursued above and beyond God, injustice will happen. And so what we see is that the glory of the Lord has arrived in Babylon through these visions. Ezekiel's like weirded out by this, but God is saying, 
I've left the building. I've removed my presence from the temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because my people have been given to idolatry and injustice. So it leaves you saying, okay, well, what makes us a distinct people anymore? God is gone. He's left the building. Is there any hope for God's people? And that's what makes the book of Ezekiel so stunning, is that now there is this promised temple that's going to be built. You see the previous chapters, it's all this detail, this vision of this new temple that's going to be established. Because Solomon's temple is eventually destroyed. Not only does God leave the temple, but it's completely destroyed. And so these promises then of God rebuilding a temple and seeing his presence come like a mighty rushing river, life-giving river. Now we're promises that the people of God are standing there in this time saying, oh, fantastic, something wonderful is going to happen. God hasn't abandoned us. There's a plan here. He's going to put it into motion. And it's incredible promises that God is granting. He's saying, not only am I going to reside in this new temple, but I'm going to flow through it. And I'm going to flow through it in pretty amazing ways. Even the way this river of God's presence is described, it's described as being unstoppable. It begins as a trickle, but then it's ankle deep and knee deep and waist deep. And before you know it, Ezekiel's saying, I can't even swim through this water. It is so deep. It is so wide. It, it has the idea that it's over a mile wide. It's over 17 football fields wide. This river begins as a trickle, but it becomes huge, right? It's the unstoppable presence of God. There's nothing that's going to stop you. you have you ever stepped into a, a rushing stream? We used to do that back in the boundary waters up in Minnesota. Many times we would try to cross streams and just get swept away. This is a massive river that is on the move. It is unstoppable. Nothing, nothing can stop it. Nothing can hinder it. It's going to have its way. It's going to accomplish. And not only is it unstoppable, it begins to make you think of Jesus' statement where the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It's this unstoppable river of the presence of God, but not only is it unstoppable, it's transformational. It brings life wherever it goes, verse 9. And a little bit later down in the text, as we read, there's going to be fish, there's going to be life, it's going to flourish. And, and, it's, and it's words that seem to harken back to the Garden of Eden. Like, somehow... The Garden of Eden is going to be restored one day. But it's going to come through the mighty, rushing, life-giving presence of God. Now, the people of God got to be pretty stoked about this. This is, this is amazing promises in a time of exile when things look bleak. So what happens? Well, God arranges it that God's people get to go back into the land. Holding on to these incredible Ezekiel promises, God's going to do something amazing, right? And so what do they do? They begin right away. Here's Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, these leaders, as they go back into the land, they say, okay, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to establish the altar. And the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to build the temple, right? All with these promises in hand. God's going to show up in power. His presence is going to come once again, and it's going to be like nothing we've ever seen. But even as they begin the construction of the temple, and the young generation is cheering, and they're exciting. This is amazing. God's going to come and do wonderful things. 
In Ezekiel, or uh, in Ezra chapter 3, it says that the older generation who knew the glory of the prior uh, temple, they're mourning. The younger generation is celebrating. The older generation is mourning. Why are they mourning? Because they see the construction of the temple in the here and now and say it's nothing like the glory that once was. Not only in the beauty of the old Solomon temple, but also because of the glory of the Lord that inhabited that temple. They are mourning because they know that God's promises aren't being fulfilled in this moment. And that is the crescendo mark of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you've ever read through those books. They build everything. They go through all these different challenges. Oh, God's presence is going to come. He's going to come. They establish the, the reading of the Torah and they call people to repentance and they do all of this stuff thinking, oh, revival's about to break in. The, the river of the Lord is about to show up and it's silence. Nothing happens. The glory of the Lord does not return to the temple. And for 400 years, there's silence. The people of God would have been dismayed. Where has our gone God gone? But then we get to the New Testament. And holding in mind still these promises of Ezekiel, this temple, the glory of the Lord showing up and pouring forth like this mighty river. Keeping all that in mind, we get to the New Testament. And in Luke chapter 2, the back hills of Bethlehem, in the dark of night, hearing the sheep do their thing, these shepherds are hanging out there. And what happens You've got to pick up on the language of the text. Luke chapter 2, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and catch it, the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were afraid. For 400 years there is silence, but suddenly on the back hills of Bethlehem, the glory of the Lord shows up. And what is the news? The news is this, that Christ has been born. God incarnate has come. The glory of the Lord now has come, embodied in Christ. He is the one who has come, and as John says, he is the one who who becomes flesh and tabernacles, he temples among us. John says, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, brimming over with grace and truth. In other words, God's presence had finally arrived in the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus was so, he was so different from every other person. He was brimming over with grace, and he was brimming over with truth. He was so different than any other person. He was the glory of God in our midst. The presence of God had returned to the people of God. Now, as you know, Jesus goes on and he finishes up his ministry, right? He lives, he dies, he's resurrected. But even before he goes to the cross, he promises his disciples that he is going to send his spirit, that the presence of God will not leave the people of God. 
that while Jesus will ascend to his Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit will come. So Jesus will say this in John chapter 14. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but catch it. You know him. This is Jesus talking to this. You know the presence of God in your midst. The Holy Spirit has been at work in your midst. They've seen the healings. They've seen the deliverance. They've seen the amazing things happening around them. But Jesus then goes on to say, You know the Holy Spirit, for he abides with you, but catch it, he will be in you. Just as Jesus had said in John chapter 7, rivers of God's presence are going to flow from you. For this he spoke of the Holy Spirit that he would give to us as he would be glorified. In other words, what we have then is that Jesus, yes, he, ex he ascends to his Father in Acts chapter 2. We see the Holy Spirit poured out. God intends to be with his people. And not only with his people, but now in his people, which the idea becomes this. We are now the temple of God. Even the temple that Ezekiel spoke of in his visions. It's like if you would actually do the engineering and actually put those pieces together, it wouldn't be a building that would actually stand. It's not to be taken in its literal form. It, 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 it foresaw something different, something unique, something altogether different from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it was now the church. And at the center of the church would be the presence of God, for it would be God's people who would be God's temple. The church isn't a building. We are not just another community. We are not just another social club. We are the temple of God. God has said, I will dwell in your midst. I will be with you and in you. And isn't that the testimony of the book of Acts? As the book of Acts moves, man, God's on the move through the church in incredible ways. And we see again and again the language of the Spirit filling his people, coming on his people, baptizing his people. Why? So that they would be empowered to be channels of God's presence, life-giving presence to the world that's around them. And that's the beauty then of the book of Acts. Remember, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part. And that's the trajectory of the book of Acts. It's God's presence in God's people with the word increasing from Jerusalem all to the ends of the earth. It's an incredible reality. Mission doesn't happen without the presence of God in and among his people making it happen. This is God's promise his promised presence among his people. God's people, the church, is made distinct by the presence of God in our midst. Uh, maybe I want to go here just for kind of application's sake. For every text that will speak of the church being unique according to its holiness. That's what happens when you're outside. For all the texts that speak of 
our responsibility to pursue holiness. Our holiness is not what first makes us distinct. We are not holy on our own. We've, that, the church is a, has been saved from death, a spiritual depravity to spiritual life. I didn't do that. You didn't do that. That's what Christ did. And the holiness now that we get to pursue is not a work that we just fight to accomplish. It is an act of grace. We're depending upon God's grace to actually follow in the holiness that he's called us to. But without the presence of God, that's called religiosity. That's nothing more than the very Pharisees that criticized Jesus along his ministry. It's interesting, you look in the book of Acts, who are, the, who are the disgruntled people? Who are the ones who are striving? It's all the religious folks who are not marked by the presence of God. They're trying to be holy. They're trying to do good things. They're trying to accomplish things. And, and it's frustration. The distinct difference is the fact that God's presence is residing in and among God's people. We are the temple of God so that even as the apostles would tend to the church and the apostles would instruct the church, you would hear statements like this from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy you, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And then he goes on to talk about he's calling us to holiness. Why? Because God's in our midst. Because God will enable our holiness. God will enable a morality that exalts Christ. So it's we, the church, who becomes the dwelling place of God on earth. Now, if you look even further in the storyline of Scripture, everything comes to a grand conclusion. And the grand conclusion is stated by the Apostle John in Revelation 21. Check it out. He says this. He says, I saw no temple in the new Jerusalem. When all things have been made right again, when all things have been restored again, the Apostle John says, I saw no temple. No temple was there. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And as the picture concludes in the book of Revelation, there is a stream, there is a river that is the presence of God among his people, granting life, seeing something of the Garden of Eden restored all over again. But it's God who then declares again, just as he always has throughout the storyline of Scripture, that it is always been his desire to dwell with his people and his people with him. There is no more temple. Why? Because all things have been restored. What's the point again? Maybe I should remind you. <laughs> what makes God's people distinct is God's presence among his people. We have to be careful, specifically as a church, in this kind of setting, in this kind of culture, that we prioritize something of the presence of God. We don't first pursue holiness that will lead to religiosity apart from the presence and grace of God upon our lives. 
We don't even pursue ministry. We don't say, hey, we're going to be get together as DCs and we're going to go do this and we're going to go do that in our own strength and our power because this is the strategy that we've accomplished. No, we want something of the Spirit's blessing. We want to keep in step with what He's doing. We want to go as He leads. Why? Because otherwise it's religiosity. It's nothing more than cold religion, which is nothing more than something that will burn us out as a people. The life-giving stream must satisfy the thirsty soul and from the thirsty soul be something of a river of refreshment to others. You know, when you look at the book of Acts, there's a unique theme that's marked throughout it. And that theme is joy. <laughs> you, you see some of the greatest persecution that the church faces in the, in the book of Acts. And yet it's marked by incredible joy. Incredible sacrifices happening. People are dying. <laughs> but there's joy. There's joy again and again and again. And it's not just because, well, they've done all this uh, uh, religious stuff. No, it's because something of the presence of God is known in their midst. And because God is known, they're sharing stuff with one another. When you truly taste and see that the Lord is good, all the stuff in this life suddenly doesn't matter anymore. You've come to know his glory. You've come to apprehend who he is. And therefore, I, man, my stuff doesn't belong to me. Hey, they're sharing their stuff with one another. They're gathering together. They're, they're on mission with one another, accomplishing great things because they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. God's presence is dwelling in their midst. So as Mercy Gate, how are we distinct? How will we be known as a people? Will we be known for just good effort, do some good to the neighborhood, do some good here and there? Well, will we be known by just our, our upstanding morals, got all our families intact? Or will all of that stuff ultimately point to the fact that God is in our midst? God is with us. He's working through us. And therefore, he gets all the credit and he gets all the glory. And oh, do we just want to press into his presence again, to know more of him from his word, not to just know more about him, but know more of him. I want to go deeper in relationship with him. I want to taste and see that he's good. Personally, how's your relationship with the Lord been? Can you say, yeah, I've... I've seen afresh the glory of Christ. I, I, I've tasted and seen that he's, he's good. Or is it that your affection has been taken with every other thing in this world that it offers? God is saying, hey, I want to be known in your midst. But I want to know your heart as you would know my heart. I want to engage with you. This is a real relationship where his presence might be known. And folks, I'm just going to state it for clarity's sake. When it comes to knowing God's presence in our midst, for every way that he shows up through this book is every possible way he might show up in our midst. He might show up in a blaze of fire. He might show up in a pillar of cloud. He might show up shaking the, the, 
the walls of this building like he does in Acts 4. There's expectancy, folks, when we think of a God like that. He can show up in all the ways that he showed up in this book, and perhaps more. But he also will show up by convicting your heart of sin and drawing you near to him afresh. He, 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 will draw, he will show himself by giving you, as you read through the word, it becomes something rich and wonderful. Something of the glory of Christ is being revealed in those moments. That's him showing, that's him manifesting himself in your presence. You are encountering God in that moment, not just reading your Bible in that moment. He'll manifest himself through the spiritual gifts. We have to be very careful as we've talked, when we talk about the spiritual gifts, that we do not lower the bar on God. As God has worked in the past, he can work now. Through the gift of tongues, through the gift of healing, through the gift of miracles, through the gift of hospitality, through the gift of administration. And if one, if one depends upon God's grace as the gift of miracle would, such would be the same for the gift of administration. You don't do that in your own power. You do that as one who walks according to the Spirit to see Him made manifest through the gifting that He has granted you. Folks, when it comes down to it, there are many ways God will manifest His presence among us. Do you want that? Do you desire that? Do you expect that? For God has said, my presence will make you as my people distinct from any other. As Mercy Gate, does God's presence make us a distinct people? Let's pray. God, we come before you and we thank you that throughout the storyline of Scripture, we get this broad reality, this broad context where you are a God who comes after us time and time and time again to see your presence established among your people. Jesus Christ, we honor you as the one who went to that cross. The veil was torn so that no temple, no brick and mortar temple would be needed again because you came to temple among us and you came to make us your very temple. Holy Spirit, I pray even now that you would come upon us, that as the book of Acts says, that you would fill your people for the task and ministry that you've granted us as your people, that we would be individuals who would not just be striving in religiosity, not just apathetic in our religiosity, but that we would know something of your presence. God, I pray by your Spirit, even now, that you would intensify your giftings in your people. I pray that even this week there would be dreams and visions that your people would receive from you, that you would grant them something of a clarity to the voice of your spirit that speaks to them moment by moment when we don't even have ears for you. Holy Spirit, speak to us. And God, I pray that even this week there would be a refreshment that would come from the reading of your word, that your word would just kind of dance before our eyes, that it would bring something of vitality to our souls, that it would be rich, that it would be wonderful, that it would, yes, truly do what you have promised, that it would satisfy our thirsty souls. So Holy Spirit, we, we surrender ourselves before you and say, come and move among us. Make your presence the distinct reality so that even as we gather together in our small groups, that it's not just about us meeting, but you're meeting with us and we can tell 
God, we long for you. We desire you. I pray, I pray, Lord, even as Paul states, let us be fools for you. If that's what requires us to know something of your presence working in us and through us for the good of others. Make us fools for you. Maybe the way you might work in us and through us doesn't live up to reason and Western ideals. God, break it down. Holy Spirit, come and lead us. Use us as your instruments to see the glory of Christ made known. We ask this then in Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand as we close in song? We're going to close with, let your kingdom come. And I encourage you guys to sing this out as a prayer that, um, that all that Dan just taught would, would be applied in our hearts and in our lives. Um, we want to pray this out, that God's kingdom would come, that it would be expanded, that it would be made known through our lives. So would you guys sing this with me?
just want to close in praying. Um, one of the beautiful ways that God makes his presence known in our midst is through sustaining the weary. It's no less his presence active among us. And so just in closing, I want to pray for those who may just find in, in some way, especially during this season, that life is a weary thing. Maybe it's because school has started up again and that's all craziness, right? Uh, or maybe there's plenty other things going on in life at this point where you just say it's, it's too much. Um, so I just want to end by praying that God's presence would be revealed in sustaining the weary. God, we pray uh, a thanksgiving and a, and a praise to you. Thank you, God, that you desire to be in our midst. Thank you that you desire to make your presence known. Thank you that nothing can stop the river of your presence bringing life and transformation to this world. And God, we thank you that while on a global scale that is happening, thank you that it happens in the quiet or in the chaos of our own homes. Thank you that it happens when Everything is kind of backwards and we're tired and exhausted and don't even feel like we can kind of get out of bed and, and move throughout our day. God, I pray that there would be a unique manifestation of your presence in giving strength to the weary. God, I pray it would be an astounding kind of realization that this is not just something that is happening in our own physical bodies, in our own strength, but no, something of your grace is being known, something of your presence is being realized in those moments. So God, we thank you that you cause us to mount up with wings like eagles. What imagery you grant us. When we are weary, when life is just all too much, you hold that promise out before us. And of course, that is not something that we accomplish in our own strength, but it's something that by your grace through the accomplishment of Jesus that we receive. Thank you that your grace is not just something that you throw at us from a distance, but your grace is your very own presence known and felt among us. So God, sustain the weary in this season. Sustain them. Give them strength. Give them fresh affection for you. And may their hearts, their minds be all the more set on you in a joyfulness that is only of you through very difficult times. So we pray your sustaining presence, your grace upon them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.